hppodcraft.com. Welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. I am your host, Chris Lackey, with fellow host... That's, that's when I say my name. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. There you go. You would think that we've done like 80 of these now, that we'd be better at this. Yeah, we're not. <laughs> we've learned nothing. Well, uh, what are we talking about here on the show today? We're covering the second part of At the Mountains of Madness, and... Okay. It's one of Lovecraft's best-known works and biggest. And we've barely scratched the surface here. I mean, what, what we talked about in the last episode was that this group of uh, scientists from Miskatonic University put together an expedition. They went out to Antarctica just to bore into the glaciers and get some soil samples and just learn about a part of the world that at that time in history people didn't, you know, they didn't know very much about. You know, we had explorers. A lot of these guys are big inspirations for Lovecraft when he was writing the story. Naval Admiral Richard Evelyn Byrd. Mm -hmm. He was an aviator and he's a navigator. I mean, this guys like this in Shackleton, you know, these guys that went out there and exactly and and, and said, hey, this is a part of the world that we don't know anything about way down there on the southern cap of the planet. And and we're going to take the risk and we're going to. And it is very risky to do this, right? Oh, yeah. Super dangerous. as, As you were saying in the last episode, it's probably at that time the best equivalent to interstellar exploration in that you're going to this unforgiving portion of the world i mean you you will die if you don't have some good furs and lime juice (laughs) that you just can't go outside explorers are really interesting because i'm sure that there's a sense of personal glory you get from it there's Mm -hmm. a sense of egoism but at the same time you're acting on behalf of the rest of the human race you are an ambassador to an unknown realm i'm going to go check this out i'm going to tell everybody what it's about and i can see how lovecraft wanted to to celebrate these guys. This story is about that, except it just goes kind of horribly wrong in a lot yeah. of ways. And it's got monsters. And monsters, of course. Where we left off, these guys had just found a crazy imprint that they have mm-hmm. no explanation for. The footprint or the marking of a large creature, pre-Cambrian, which is uh, between 570 million years ago to 500 million years ago. That's Cambrian. Mm-hmm. So it's before that. At that time, there should only be small, tiny little creatures. But this thing is huge and everybody's excited about it yeah contradicts everything that counter yeah changes everything this is a big this is a game changer here right they were planning on going east but they say hey we need to go west or actually northwest because that's what these samples are 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 taking us to here that's what lake is saying that's what lake is saying yeah the biologist but our main guy dyer says well we should stick to the plan if we want to get all these things done we should stick to our plan we've planned for this we shouldn't do that everybody else is like no this is a huge discovery we have to check it out and he kind of feels like you know i'm gonna get vetoed here so let's just do this obviously it's a big deal i think lake is kind of a jerk in a way he is and we see a little bit of him kind of doing his own thing later on in the story yeah but you know dyer didn't have to let him go no this is dyer's expedition yeah 
and he's in charge, but he let him go. And then when he, well, we'll get into it, but as he's sending reports back, he's like, ha ha, don't you wish you could have come? Yeah. <laughs> Who, who's awesome now? You know? <laughs> yeah. And Dyer's super nice. Well, that's later, but Dyer like yeah. congratulates him. It's like super cool about it. I know. And he keeps rubbing his face in it. It's such really a, funny. Such a jerk. On January 11th, Peabody takes a, a group of five dudes and scouts out ahead just to see if, if he's right, if there's anything going on out there. Yeah, that's, that's from the text, right? Lovecraft wrote five dudes. <laughs> and then um, he comes back and he says, yeah, look, I found more stuff. This is totally the way we need to go. So on January 22nd, they move most of the expedition to the northwest by about 300 miles. And, you know, it's not like they're on little planes that skip between Hawaiian islands or something. I mean, these flights are quite long. Yeah, hours. They're in the plane for like six hours, right, to cross this distance. They're there. They're in there for a long time. Yeah, that's the time it takes to cross the United States. Well, I mean, obviously we're we're flying in planes much faster than than they are, but still. No, no, we're not. Those are the. I still take these. <laughs> I have. <laughs> hey, you know there there's a great um, parody of the Polar Express children's book that Ken Height. Oh right, wrote, yeah. Called the Antarctic Express. The Antarctic Express, yes. That's like a children's book adaptation of of this story that's great and we'll put up a link to it in the show notes but it's something everybody should check out it's <laughs> it's good it's really good yeah continuing on with the story as they are flying ahead they send a wireless report you can't imagine anything like this highest peaks must go over thirty-five thousand feet everest out of the running atwood to work out height with theodolite while carol and i go up probably wrong about cones or formations look stratified possibly precambrian slate with other strata mixed in Queer skyline effects, regular sections of cubes clinging to highest peaks, whole thing marvelous in red-gold light of low sun, like land of mystery in a dream or gateway to forbidden world of untrodden wonder. Wish you were here to study. Well, that's nice, actually. Wish you were here. Yeah. Now, just to give you an idea, when he says it's, he thinks it's 35,000 feet, Mount Everest... Mm -hmm is only 29,000 feet. Wow. So this is even bigger than Everest. In the story, we get into all sort of prehistoric monsters and what their intentions are and Shoggoths and all these things that are monsters and they're scared. But the scale of this stuff is the really horrifying part. You mm -hmm. know, if you got dropped off there, there's no walking out of it. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're yep. just done. Horrible. When they're up there and they're, they're kind of looking at this mountain, he keeps seeing strange glimpses from be of, of beyond it. It looks like things or maybe maybe some ramparts up there or some some strange cubes there's lighter colored rocks it's confusing to him he's like maybe i'm not seeing things right you know maybe it's just this the distortion of the atmosphere or something but it looks yeah like something strange is going on like as in, and that's when they reference uh, nicholas rurick again yes because of the you know those strange cubes are just cubes. very bizarre yeah exactly they also use a theodolite which is a um, surveying instrument that's used to measure horizontal and vertical lines so they're able to use this instrument to figure out exactly how tall mountains are. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's one of the things I had to look up while I was reading this, because I didn't know what they were talking about. So they all get on the horn with Captain Douglas, who is the captain of one of the ships. The Arkham. No, he's on the Arkham, that's correct. And they say, well, okay, things have changed. We were planning on going east, but now we're going we're going northwest. Yeah, heck yeah. And they're, they're, he's like, okay, sure, you know, maybe we should set up a, a direct route, start planning, you know, mm -hmm. supplying it to there instead of going to you and then you going to them and then he's like okay yeah that's that's probably a good idea after a while atwood's you know measuring all these things and, and trying to figure out exactly how big this area is and he finds five five peaks that are uh between thirty thousand and thirty four thousand feet 
high, mm-hmm. which is, you know, again, super, super Crazy. big. Yeah, super, super yeah. big. Now, in the in the story, how are we getting this information? It's like sort of a, we're just getting reports, right? Yes, there's a wire. They send wireless reports back to Arkham and then everybody's being informed as things are going on because this is an yeah. exciting expedition. And and the Arkham advisor is printing these reports. But it's a cool way to deliver the information because you get a bit here and then they build on it in the next one and then they build on it in the next one. Exactly. You know, these little bulletins keep coming in and they're weird and then it's weirder. So now the only guys left at the old base camp is is our man uh, Dyer and, and mm-hmm. Peabody and a couple other guys. And they only have one plane. All the other planes have gone up to this to this new location. Since it looks like everything's going to be moving up there, Peabody and Dyer kind of pack up house and you know get this thing all situated to be left for a while lake and his crew they land and start setting up shop they get to boring right away they find they start finding samples everybody's super excited but then they find a cave Uh oh yes so they, they find a natural cave and they're gonna find some cave creatures well they find all dead kinds of cave creatures to begin with Okay, but there are there skeletons. It looks like maybe um, of some kind of vert- vertebrate fossils. Uh, mm-hmm. Something had been bringing things in there and maybe eating them because they find these weird holes in the bones, as if made by some kind of tooth, tool, something. There are these strange punctures in the bones. Strange. All this is really strange. But inside, there's all types of uh, crustaceous period creatures. You know, just yesterday, this is kind of almost completely off topic. But sure. I, I, w- I went to the Getty Villa here in Los Angeles, which is um, a museum that specializes in classical and uh, Greek and Roman art. Right. Mm-hmm. And some of the sculptures that they have, that they had a sculpture of Zeus that was probably from like 100 AD. Wow. It had lived underwater so many of those years, hundreds of years, uh, had just been submerged because I think they'd gotten it out of a shipwreck. Oh. And and so it had been bored into by mollusks that actually had made Zeus their home, you know? Right. And, and then they restored the statue. It looks very good, but there's tiny little holes all over it. And I, I don't know. I was just staring at it and imagining this statue of Zeus just underwater for years and years and years, you know, with all these animals that were kind of dependent on it. And it's it's this beautiful you know, kind of classical face where he's just staring off into space and I could just see the water going past his face. And Something about it to me it was very Lovecraftian in a way. Yeah. The, just the, the long period of time. Or this, it reminded me of the temple a little bit. And I, I, I you know, right. I was thinking even about this, how here it was in front of me, something that human hands had sculpted almost 2,000 years ago that survived and told me something about their culture. Yeah. And we're going to get into that later in this story. And it does seem a little preposterous in the story that people could learn so much about the alien culture just from their art. You know, you do learn a lot. You, you learn a lot about not only that culture that made it, but what has happened in the intervening years because of the way that it's been eroded. I don't know. Off topic a little bit, but it's just something that was on my mind when it's I was... It's totally on topic. What are you talking about? <laughs> All the life forms in this cave are, are ancient. They're pre-mammal, uh, mostly reptilian, some dinosaur type stuff. Mm-hmm. And everybody's excited. Again, our narrator warns that the Stark raving Moorcock expedition shouldn't come. Yeah, they shouldn't do it. They shouldn't yeah, do it. Don't, you know, don't, don't go. Don't out go. There. And then he continues on with the story. Um, they discover the more of these fossilized footprints of these big mollusky five-pointed things. They find some from 600 million years ago. What? Which is a, a long time. So the, the craziness of it is that means that this creature has not evolved over hundreds of millions of years. In fact, they even say, well, it looks like it might be a slight de-evolution in it, and it's the oh, way that man. it's moved. And it's like, like, what is going on? So yeah. everybody is going nuts. 
because yeah. this i mean the, the quote here that uh, that he says is um uh will mean to biology what einstein has meant to mathematics and physics mm-hmm. so that's no, so, a great quote too. yeah well i can you imagine discovering something like that yeah it's insane. Whatever this is. Oh, you can't imagine it? I can't. <laughs> that would blow my mind. I think I would pee my pants in excitement and revelation. I would just get really excited about it. Oh, okay. Maybe, I should. Maybe I've said too much. You've said far too much. Uh, <laughs> so the, the next portion of it, these are all updates from Lake. Yeah, this is what I was talking about. You get the little bullets. They find these weird soapstone fragments that are about six inches across and uh, about an inch and a half thick. And they, they're kind of this greenish stone, and they're shaped like five-pointed stars. And they have these strange markings on them or engravings. But what's really crazy about it is the dogs hate it. They flip out at these little stone things. Like, they anywhere near it, they start barking, they start growling, they start going nuts at stone, which is really bizarre. It is. Well, dogs sense evil. They sure do. Sometimes when a dog barks at me, I wonder, is he does he know, like, the bad stuff I've done? What? Is that dog looking into my soul right now? Does he sense my evil? He smells it, right? Chad, is this is something you want to talk about? Anyway, the next report. 10.15 p.m. Important discovery. Orendorf and Watkins, working underground at 9.45 with light, found monstrous barrel-shaped fossil of wholly unknown nature. Probably vegetable, unless overgrown specimen of unknown marine radiata. Tissue evidently preserved by mineral salts. Tough as leather, but astonishing flexibility retained in places. Marks of broken off parts at ends and around sides. Six feet end to end. 3.5 feet central diameter, tapering to one foot at each end. Like a barrel with five bulging ridges in place of staves. Lateral breakages, as of thinnish stalks, are at equator in middle of these ridges. In furrows between ridges are curious growths, combs or wings that fold up and spread out like fans, all greatly damaged but one, which gives almost seven-foot wing spread. Arrangement reminds one of certain monsters of primal myth, especially fabled elder things in the Necronomicon. These wings seem to be membraneous, stretched on framework of glandular tubing, apparent minute orifices in frame tubing at wing tips. Ends of body shriveled, giving no clue to interior or to what has been broken off there. Must dissect when we get back to camp. Can't decide whether vegetable or animal. Many features obviously of almost incredible primitiveness. Have sent all hands cutting stalactites and looking for further specimens. Additional scarred bones found, but these must wait. Having trouble with dogs. They can't endure the new specimen and would probably tear it to pieces if we didn't keep it at a distance from them. Whoa. By the way, uh, our reader today is Joe Freya. That was who we just heard and we've heard a couple of times on the show. Yes. Um, thanks for doing the readings again, Joe. He's going to be with us for the duration of this trip. Just wanted to throw that out there real quick. And the other thing about this, uh, The Thing, the movie, yes. the film. Right. This really reminds me of The Thing. Now, I'm talking about the old one, actually, or The Thing from Another World or whatever it was originally called. Well, right. it's all based on uh, a story by W.E. Campbell called Who Goes There? Yep. Which was written for Astounding Stories, actually, right? This yeah. Is the same, mm-hmm. same magazine published it in 38. But um, in the original, The Thing, it was kind of a half-vegetable alien. 
Right. That's such an interesting notion that you can't. You can't. Is this an animal? Is it a vegetable? I don't understand the way that this thing is working. Well, right. Well, I mean, it's it's defying all natural laws. I mean, this is you're in totally new territory here. It doesn't understand. You know, it, it's pretty much unchanged over hundreds of millions of years, which is yeah. almost unheard of. And it was existing when there was only single-celled organisms around. Which means that there's a whole world of civilization we don't know anything about. Exactly. Some kind of animal was on. The, it's crazy. I do have to say that many times during the story. And this stuff is all really exciting, but later when it gets a little boring, I think, I really should just throw in my DVD of the thing. Now I'm talking about the John Carpenter version, you know? Oh, <laughs> it's like I just, Which has so much uh, similarity to this, but also it's, it's, it's a little different, but gosh, that's a good movie. Well, totally inspired, though, by The Mountains of Madness. And Carpenter said yeah. so, that he loved Lovecraft. And, you know, he did the, mo- he did the movie uh, uh, Mouth of Madness, which is totally Lovecraft inspired you know he's a big fan and and I, a lot of times you'll hear people say when you're talking about lovecraftian film adaptations yeah there's a lot of adaptations of the direct stories but actually the best lovecraft movie is the thing oh my even God. though it's not a direct adaptation it's got everything that yes. these stories aspire to but it's told in a completely cinematic way i just love that movie so much it's so good it shares um a lot of commonalities with this in that creatures unfathomable you can't quite understand but even from the beginning of that story uh where the helicopter's chasing the dog in the norwegian yeah yeah, something else already happened and the people are left trying to pick up the pieces from something that already went down which happens in in here right and we're we're in that that section of it right now so we're going from here he gives a lot of way too much description in my opinion of the elder things like measurements Mm. of all of their different limbs and how big they are and you know as a scientist would so he This is probably the most detailed description of a Lovecraft creature ever. Yeah, this thing is not unknowable. It's very knowable. Yeah. I mean, it's very well described. And it's a little hard to imagine. I actually was going online and trying to look at other people's art. Right. You know, how, how they drew these things, just so I could kind of envision it. And it's it's pretty interesting because they can exist underwater. They can also fly. Yeah. They're very tough. They're very elastic. They, everything in their body is kind of built to exist in any environment and be able to do anything at first it seems like just such a weird creature it's just a big barrel with appendages right but the more i was thinking about it as i was reading it i'm like this is actually this makes sense that this is something that evolved to such a high level it can it's got those vegetable properties that keep it from having the problems that you know mammals have it doesn't really age it's just it's it's fascinating yeah it's super cool it's super cool and one beef though that i had in that little bit he mentions that it reminds him of the primal myth of the elder things in the Necronomicon, which means right. Lake has also read the Necronomicon. <laughs> I'm telling you, dude, <laughs> it just gets passed around. Uh, it's like a dog-eared copy of the Lovely Bones or something. Like everybody's <laughs> just handing it around. To each other. You, you have to read this. It's at cocktail parties. You haven't read the Necronomicon? Oh my god! Oh god! I will give you mine. Lovely Bones. Uh, anyway, <laughs> and one of the last little transmissions that that Lake gives here, uh, he says this. Dyer and Peabody have read Necronomicon and have seen Clark Ashton Smith's nightmare paintings based on text and will understand when I speak of elder things supposed to have created all Earth life as jest or mistake. Students have always thought conception formed from morbid imaginative treatment of very ancient tropical radiata. Also, like prehistoric folklore things Will Marth has spoken of, Cthulhu cult appendages, etc., Wow. So there's a lot there. And he's tying in other stories. I mean, he's just tying in yeah. what he just wrote with Wilmarth and with Amigos. It's so cool. Yeah. And his buddy Clark Ashen Smith. Yeah, exactly. Friend of Lovecraft's who Lovecraft really loved his work. He was a writer as well. And so, you know, he's tying him into a story. Yeah, that's really cool. Gave his friend a shout out there. I, I love the horrifying concept that Earth life was created 
either as a mistake or a joke. Yeah. It was funny. <laughs> you know, well, like I some mean, ancient race that we can't understand created, a, a, you know, we've evolved and we find ourselves to be very important and, and the dominant species on the planet. But as it turns out, the whole thing's a joke. Well, this, I mean, this is one of the things that I really dig about Lovecraft where he kind of takes an opposite approach. I mean, he's neither the, the religious person who tends to have a more uh, positive, benevolent theme or reason it for life in the universe and existence. And then an atheist, a person who doesn't, is kind of neutral. Like, life just happens, you know, whatever. Lovecraft takes it and says, <laughs> oh no, it's, not, it's neither of those things. It's either a mistake or a joke. <laughs> like, it's intentionally malevolent. Or the best case scenario, which is just kind of negligent. Yeah. I love it. It is great. It was rolling around in my mind when I dug back into this, when I read that specific passage and I put the book down, I was just laying there thinking about it. You know, it's something that sticks with you and say what you want about, there are a lot of ways that you could attack this story. There are a lot of ways that you could probably break it down as an actual piece of fiction, but conceptually right there, it just, man, that sticks with you. Yeah, it does. At this point in the story, both Peabody and, and Dyer are just freaking so excited and they can't wait to get down there. There's been really bad storms keeping the planes from flying. They're going to send a plane back to pick up the guys because they have one plane that they're holding for an emergency back by the ships. So until the weather cl clears up, Dyer and Peabody have to wait. And Lake and his group continue to discover more of these elder thing bodies, which are in various states of condition. Some are you know, really damaged and others are perfectly preserved. Yeah. And he wants to start dissecting them. That's freaking weird that they're perfectly preserved. Especially that they're that old. Like, as far as I know, there is no organic life form, complex organic life form that has existed for over millions of years. No way. How could those specimens be in that kind of shape? Makes no sense. Maybe maybe we'll get an explanation later on. <laughs> yeah, maybe we will. <laughs> the next section, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kind of skip over this. He kind of goes into a very, way too much detail again um, uh, about this vivisection of this corpse, of this creature, and talks about how it's got a five-level brain. It seems like maybe it's an amphibian, that it can fly, that it has properties of both plants and animals and fungus, and it's all, this, all these different types of things. Dyer, our narrator, he can't help but think of these myths of the great old ones that he that he's mm -hmm. heard before and about life being a mistake or a joke is really kind of upsetting him and he's getting a little afraid and nervous but his his scientific brain is way more in control here but still a part of him is getting freaked out there's a lot of that tension throughout the story you know you he'll say to the reader now i know you must think we're crazy for delving deeper into this but you have to remember we're scientists and we're ex we're explorers and that just takes over sometimes yeah. But always at his core, he's just shaken up by the revelations. It's so it's so good. It's just it's so exciting and interesting. I, I can't get, a, get enough of this stuff. So after after they're done with their study of the body, they kind of take the rest of the bodies and they put them under a tarp because the sun, even in freezing temperatures, can still warm things up. And they're just trying to protect it from the sun. Uh, they have to keep the dogs away because the dogs are going completely crazy. This brings me to the conclusion that, again, you know, my theory that, that dogs are the heroes <laughs> in all of Lovecraft's stories right. through the actual. But it, I was thinking about it as I was reading this. You know, here we are. Humans have evolved so long. Maybe our whole purpose was so that we could breed dogs and bring them along. And at some point, we'll, we'll be replaced by the, the dogs who have the good sense to stay away from this crap. You know, yeah. <laughs> they don't like it. If it's around, they want to kill it and move on. Yeah. They don't. They're the smarter life form. Yes. This is our whole purpose. It's not the robots. It's, it's the canines who are going to replace us. Absolutely. 
with Lake doing his studies and Peabody and Dyer waiting for the weather to clear up and them to send a plane back to get them, that concludes the second chapter. Right. And I think that's going to be a good time for us to stop the story right now. We are moving yeah. at a snail's pace with this story, We Chad. really are. I blame myself. But it's so good. It's <laughs> such... It's This is the. This is what we've been working for, Chad, this whole time. You're right. You're right. <laughs> we... We have gotten into the promised land of Lovecraft, and we, we've earned it. <laughs> You're right. We have. We have. There, there have been uh, some, some sad weekends where I was reading, going through texts I didn't like very much. And, right. And I'm, I'm glad to be here. Uh, glad to be talking it over. And, yeah, we'll just go at whatever pace we want to. Exactly. What, what do you you think people want this show to end? I guess we could just rush through everything and get it all done. No, no, no. Yeah. In fact, we're, it's, it trines me, Chad. We're getting closer and closer to the end of Lovecraft's body of work. Yeah. Uh, we still have some great stuff ahead that I'm really excited about. But Yeah, are you kidding? Challenge from beyond? Ex- exactly. <laughs> Actually, I don't know anything about I don't know that anything story. about isn't that Isn't story. that the one where it's like there's nine writers and, and none of them work together, so they just keep picking it up and... Like Robert Howard's in there, and then oh like, right, yeah. yeah, I've never read that, but I've heard I've heard really good things about it. I might have even got the title wrong. It's or something like that, Challenge from the Stars or something like that. Yeah. I I also want to uh, bring up before we sign off here our promotion. Sure. We're doing our, our readings. Yes. That uh, that we cannot forget about. We're having uh, Rachel Lackey and Heather Clinky slash Pfeiffer. She's Heather Clinky. She never changed her name, did she? No, she didn't. She disrespects me daily. <laughs> Heather Clinky. No, I don't know. Yeah, she's a comedian, and so um, Clinky. Uh, you know, there's two K sounds in that name. I, how could I take that away from her? It's a no, name. it's a it's a great name. It's a great name. Yeah. Uh, so so Clinky is going to be reading uh, Cats of Ulther, and mm-hmm. Rachel Rachel Ford Lackey will be reading uh, Cool Air. That's right, and we've appreciated the contributions we've gotten so far. We're getting actually, mm, I don't know, we're about a quarter of the way there. We could we could yep. definitely use your support because we're paying rent on this thing now. Yep. And a uh, couple, couple of people we got to thank. Joe, Freya, again, thanks for reading on the show today, and we're going to have you on board throughout this process. Right. Uh, Reber Clark, thanks for the great music. It's beautiful. Also want to thank our tech guy and uh, design guru, Mike Mann, for everything, and our intern, uh, Brooke Burgess. And next time when we come back and, and get into this again, I think we're going to have uh, Ian join us, yeah? Ian J. Colbert is going to be jumping in on the podcast. I don't know how long we're going to be able to have him with us, but we'll, we'll have him for part of it. I love, yeah. absolutely love his adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness. I, I can't wait to talk to him about it. And of course, everybody should know that Ian is also working with us on our graphic novel Dead Beats. That's right. And that's going to be good stuff, too. We're starting to get pages in from that. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, uh, I've never hopefully, been so excited. <laughs> hopefully, we're going to, yeah, hopefully, we're going to get a publisher. And if not, uh, we will self publish and it will get in your hands. Yeah. It's great. We are loving it. And hey, since we wanted to wait until we had Ian on board next week to get into the next phase of the story, the horror at the camp phase, uh, the show is a little short this week. And so we decided to try something that we don't normally do. We have a uh, musical guest doing our outro. This is Australian hip-hop mythos-inspired outfit Humanoids doing a track they call McMurdo Boogie, which is actually kind of a synopsis of At the Mountains of Madness, so it fits right in right here as we're talking about the story. Uh, Of course, we'll put some information up about them on our page in the show notes. Hope you enjoy it. With that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Well, I was just a boy when I first left town We took the icebreak into McMurdo Sound We had two ships and planes and dogs And months of supplies 
It was a once in a lifetime opportunity, an expedition with the university. We had heads of faculties, men of science. But what good did it do? And I was 19 then, but I'm older now. I still tremble when I hear the cold wind howl. Small group huddled in Antarctic waste. Things no one should see. Yeah, all started with the soapstone we found. Should have left it lying and buried in the ground. As men of science, it was hard to resist. And let it sleep in God's light. Take a lily, take a lily, take a lily. All I hear is take a lily, take a lily, take a lily, take a lily. All I hear is take a lily. Body split into the mountains of cold. Radio died from the storm in the morning. I was almost relieved because the news was unsettling. Star had a creature in the eyes. Mm-hmm. Hey, I flew to base and the picture was grim. That day, science lost some very fine men. Me and the professor now pressing on.
HPPodcraft.com